Hey folks, welcome back to the BC3 cast. I am Brian. With me as always is Zach. Vince is dead. We mourn him. Long live Vince. And uh we'll uh we'll 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 deal with his death in future weeks. But for now, let's talk about some comics. This is a big, big week. We're talking about the comics that were released on the 8th of August 2018. And uh, let's dive right in, Zach, to the Sandman universe, number one. Uh, sort of overseen by Neil Gaiman, but illustrated by Simon Spurrier, Cat Howard. Uh, I'm sorry, Cy Spurrier, Nato Hopkinson, Cat Howard, and Dan Waters. Illustrated by Bilquis Evely, Domo Stanton, Tom Fowler, Max Fiumara, and Sebastian Fiumara. Um, yes. <laughs> there's a lot of creators to sort of credit here. Now, uh, before we get into the sort of review of this, this is an issue that it seems like more comic companies are doing now when like a big line is launching where they, where they give us sort of a little taste of each of the stories to to act as a an introduction to the universe as a whole. And this issue attempts to have, uh, it uses uh, Matthew the Raven as the uh, sort of glue that holds the issue together. Before we get into the individual parts, did you feel that the story worked as as sort of an overarching introduction with Matthew as the guide through it? Or do you feel it felt a little bit disjointed and perhaps... Uh, you know, not equal to the sum of its parts. I think it was definitely a little disjointed. This is like DC Universe Rebirth. Yeah. Number one, basically. Um, in fact, it's pretty much exactly like that. You could almost sub out um, Matthew for Wally. Yeah, and it's also kind of like, what was the Marvel book recently that just did this? Um, you know what I'm talking about? Oh uh, yeah, the Jason Aaron, yes, yeah, Marvel Legacy, Marvel yeah. Legacy, yeah, 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 very similar. Um, so no, as a as a story, it doesn't really work, but it does what it's set out to do to you know be a. Um, starting point for these four four different books it does that really well yeah i i agree with you pretty much completely i wish that i wish that the first issues of these books were written so that you didn't need to read this first mm -hmm. like i don't think that this is necessarily a great comic but there are some there are some really nice moments in it, and I think it does set the stage for the other four books. It also, to me, very clearly delineated which books I'm more interested in, uh, based on the sort of the tone of the individual stories. That is not to say that there was a single story here that I'm not going to be checking out, but it sort of gave me a good idea of of what I'm excited about versus what I'm, you know. More that's interesting. One, I'm curious to I'm curious to hear which ones stood out to you as the most interesting. Okay, well, do you want to just get into them? Kind of go through them. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we can go through. Yeah. The first, and again, like there's no, unlike the Marvel Legacy book, where there were pretty clear seams of when one story started and ended. This is a little bit more amorphous by definition. Um. But it's still you can still sort of see what 
you know, what is ha what what sections for which story. And the book is sort of framed by the um the dreaming section, which will be written by Cy Spurrier and illustrated by Bookless Evely. Um this was my personal favorite part of the uh of the issue, I believe. I specifically liked the part with um Actually, now I'm doubting myself. Where do you think this part ends? Oh, uh, the dreaming part? Yeah. I think it ends... Uh, when, hold on. When, when he's kicked out of the dream? You're... Again, and Tim Hunter wakes up? So I'm trying. Well, actually, maybe we should. I should refresh myself on what the four books are going to be because we've got the dreaming, we've got books and magic, we've got Lucifer, and we've got um, House of Whispers. House of Whispers, yes. Yes, yeah. So I think that the dreaming sequence ends when we get into the to the books of magic section. Right. So yes. that was my favorite part. Specifically, I liked the the part where. Matthew is wondering why it's an eating dream. Well, you don't need to eat in the dreaming. And then it turns out that the woman has cancer, and so she's dreaming about food because she can't eat. I right. thought that was a really nice touch. And mm -hmm. I would, I'm excited to see what the book does with more stories set in the dreaming. This this one has a lot going for it in so much as it's the one that feels the most like a proper Sandman continuation. Yes. Agreed. This, yeah, this, this feels like a Sandman sequel. Um, if not in name, because the other books are all, uh, clearly continuations of other Sandman universe vertigo properties. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't have a Sandman book moving forward, but this is basically it. Right. And it, it seems. And, you know, we should we should say spoiler alert, which we try to say at the start of every episode. But um, it appears at the end of the issue, we find out that Dream has quit. And so that yes. is sort of the the inciting incident that I think will will, mo will most likely be, be spun out in the Dreaming, but will probably touch in all those other books. That uh, that Batman who laughs was just too twisted for him. He couldn't go on after that. <laughs> He's been having nightmares ever since. Dang nightmares! Ah, <laughs> oh, that freaking Batman who laughs. Um, so yeah, so I I felt the dreaming section worked the best of the four. Mm -hmm. I actually think that it might go in order of the book what I felt worked best. Interesting. Um. Okay. Well, do you want to just like go through each one and talk about that? Unpack sure. that a little. Yeah. So, uh, the books of magic section is, um, you know, we basically see Tim Hunter wake from a dream and then go to class, and he's he's clearly not seeing everything that's happening there. He can't read the words in his book, and uh, there his teacher is murdered on the desk, and he can't see it. And you know, I uh. I've actually never read the full Books of Magic series. Have you? 
Mm-mm. No, I haven't. So I, I think Vince has, and I'd be curious to get his take on this. But this seemed like a pretty straightforward, pretty fun uh, concept for a book of someone sort of learning to become a magician. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think of this part? Uh, so I thought that maybe of the four, I th- I think I thought this one was maybe the least interesting for two reasons. One, I thought it was a little formulaic and two built a little bit. It relied a little bit much, I think, on our on the readers either familiarity with books of magic as a concept already or with just people um, being familiar with like Harry Potter or something like that, which, (laughs) you know, this has it has like a Harry Potter vibe to it, I think. Um, I, I felt like it was the one that rested on its laurels a little bit. I don't disagree with you about that. I think that's that's actually a pretty good observation. I guess for me, it's that I like the type of stories that this is implying Mm -hmm. your your familiarity with. Yes, yeah, you know, so so that's that's why I'm looking forward to this. But I don't. I think you're right. I don't think there's anything in these ten ish pages that is really all that exciting or. Or different. If if I wasn't, if I didn't already have a predilection to liking these type of stories, I don't know if this would have excited me at all. Exactly. Yeah. I I think. Yeah. I I'm excited for it, um, but only like you mentioned because I like these kinds of stories. Um, you know, it's a school story. It's a magic story. There's a bit of a mystery, murder mystery thing going on. It's interesting. It's intriguing. But on it, I think it it requires you to already have some interest in this type of story. Um, Whereas maybe, you know, like the next one, I think presents a really kind of unique and interesting setting and concept within this world. Yes. I'll agree with that too. So I I think that part of the, um, I I don't want to call it my my aversion to the third story, because I thought the third story was fine. Uh, it's just that to me, the art of the third story was the least interesting of mm. the of the four, and that's by I Domo, agree with that. Domo yeah. Stanton, who again, not bad work here. It's just that when you've got Tom Fowler and the Fumaras and Bilquis Evely doing the other books, it's a little bit hard to live up to that. Um, and so, well, I I, yes. <laughs> I I think it is a pretty interesting story, and it's one of those things where when you you know, if if this were excerpted outside of the Sandman universe, you know, uh, title here, the first five or six pages you would never know are a supernatural Sandman story at all. You know, it's a it's a totally different um, type of tone to the other books that are in here, and then it takes a turn that's really interesting and really fun, but it's just to me, I guess, the art is the is the least interesting of the batch. Mm-hmm. I can agree with that. Definitely about the art. Um, I was just really interested in this story because um, I think it um, like Louisiana. And I assume this is in or near Louisiana. It seems like very much. I believe so. I yeah. think that's either, either been cons- confirmed or, or something, but like, I, I feel like that's a, 
culture, history, mytho- like the folklore of that area and of that culture is really interesting and not explored very often at all. Um, and so to like see that getting brought into like the Sandman universe umbrella is really interesting. Like I just I love the image of the um, the crocodile amulet like transforming into the into the person with the top hat yeah. and um, I just yeah I thought I think that's going to be really I think of all the the titles that's the one that obviously it's an it's the only like really new concept yeah. introduced and so it's kind of exciting for that reason yeah I think that this will wind up being the book that I um perhaps enjoy the most of the bunch, but it was to me the least like if the point of this salmon universe number one is to sell me on these four books, I don't know if this necessarily was the best sales job mm-hmm. um i'll t- i actually say the same thing I guess about the uh books of magic too that you know mm-hmm. both of these are i think books that will be interesting but aren't necessarily presented as well here. I think that the dreaming stuff, first of all, it's also a little bit unfair. It, the dreaming stuff had almost twice the space of the other stories. So it was right. a little bit unfair to say how how good that one was because, well, if if any of the other stories had ten extra pages, they might have been just as good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then uh, the last story is a Lucifer story. And uh, this one visually is to me, the most impressive. I love the Fumaras. Mm-hmm. And I think they... Yeah, I... Uh... Oh, go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, I, I, I agree with you. I think... I think in this issue, um... Bilquist, Evely is still maybe my favorite. Um... With the Fumaras being second. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's stiff competition. It's it such, is, it's tough. It's <laughs> such good such uh, great artists put together here. But um, I was not as big of a fan of the sort of just nonstop um, narration here. And uh, th- this is the book that, that told instead of showed the most mm-hmm. in this, in this uh, anthology issue. Yeah. And it was all a bit convoluted as well. It was the one that I had a bit more, not trouble following, but it it felt really um, the the flashback sequence was kind of weird, where you're following this bird, yeah, this other this other crow, you know that that was kind of strange. Um, although I I loved um, the the panels that were um, depicting almost kind of like artistic renditions of like yes. Yes. Uh like Renaissance paintings or mm-hmm. something of Lucifer. I I love that style um more so than like the modern day style um that's used. Uh I really like that. I, I do like the way that the Fiamaras depict Lucifer here though. There's like one panel that he's just like straight Bowie yeah. in. Um <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> just like one hundred percent. Um so yeah, I, this is this is interesting. I I don't really know though. Um, I've never read the original Lucifer. Have you? No. I, again, I, I've dabbled in all of these. I, I think 
one year it was either that Lucifer was like one of remember DC used to do those dollar first issue reprints? Yeah. I want to say I maybe picked up that or maybe my local shop had a sale or something. I've read some of Lucifer, but I've not read all of Lucifer. And I, I'm actually that's a, a really interesting point we haven't talked about with all of this. Do you think that a requisite understanding of any of these previous titles is necessary to enjoy these books? Like, can you read The Dreaming uh, without having finished Sandman? Well, I I can say, yeah, because I've not finished Sandman. I'm like, I, I got about halfway through it once. In fact, I, I read the first five trades and then kind of fell off. I did the exact um, same I, thing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I know... I know what happens up to that point, and I know that at the end, you know, Daniel Hall becomes the new uh, dream. But that's like, yeah, yeah. I don't know what happens in between that. So, like, you know, in the in the dreaming sequence, when you get to this character with the wings for ears, I forget her name. Um, you know, that's apparently something that happens towards the end of the original Sandman. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like this issue does a pretty good job of telling you what you need to know. So I think that this is actually a really great jumping on point. And then you talk about some of the other books. This seems like a hard reset maybe for books of magic. Yeah, maybe it's it not. Is. I don't know. It seems like it though. Um, and, and with Lucifer, uh, this, you know, who, who even knows there, this, this, it doesn't necessarily feel like a hard reset, but it's a brand, it's a new status quo. So, um yeah, I think as a jumping on point, this works really, really well. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting you know, we've talked a lot about sort of DC's um ability and desire to have all these small imprints under their umbrella right now. And this one seems like the most surefire money in the bank uh, you know property that they're they're doing an imprint built around and i think that it could they could have done a very lazy version of this they own everything they they didn't need to get gaiman's involvement but i think that this really shows a commitment to the sandman characters and the sandman universe not to use the exact name of the imprint there uh, but i i really hope that this is the start of dc recognizing how important vertigo is and trying to elevate vertigo into not just this sort of you know past glory but to to try and bring vertigo back into something really special i don't know if you saw um i got in the mail advanced review copies of both american carnage number one and uh border town number one and i did i did reviews on multiversity for both of them and uh, we'll talk about those issues when they come out in September and November. But I was really impressed with both of those issues. And so between those issues and this uh, one shot, it seems like DC is, and they've said this a million times, but it seems like they are really, truly trying to bring Vertigo back to a place of prominence. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um I I'm interested to see how this imprint holds up because I think that 
the dreaming could do really well, but we've seen Lucifer. We've seen one Lucifer comic come and go within the past, you know, Two few years. years. And then Timothy Hunter showed up in Justice League Dark during the New Fifty Two. I forgot. About um, that. Didn't really go anywhere with that. And then, you know, House of Whispers is very much a new IP, and we know how those go. Um, I am interested to see how long this lasts. That's a fair I think point. it could last a while. I, I, I don't think it will do poorly. I think it will do about as well as any other Vertigo thing does, though. See, I wonder if Gaiman is one of those names that can carry an entire line even if he's not writing an issue yeah yeah i i that's why that's what i mean i think at least the dreaming will do really well i i would maybe not be surprised if one or two of the other books last only went for like six to twelve issues maybe and then either spun off into something else or was was dropped maybe so that a new title could come in um I, I very much think we're going to see this go in the way of like young animal a little bit, only maybe in this case, the kind of the anchor book um, will probably be more consistent and um, then, you know, Doom Patrol was and maybe we'll have a little bit. This seems very much more like a wild storm type situation than a young animal type situation. Yes. And I think the difference there is, and this is no offense to Gerard way. It seems to me like Gerard way was very much a kid in a candy store with this. Uh huh. And it feels like Ellis and Gaiman are just more seasoned veterans and maybe built their lines in a little bit more of a sustainable way. Yeah, yeah, and and also Gaiman is. I know he he will be involved in this, but on a more macro level, yes, he's he's not writing anything. He's probably just consulting, yeah. and maybe even then only like very loosely. Yeah, it seems like it might be even something as simple as like you know he gave them the the, the story bible for these for these books. Yeah. Says, you know, here, yeah. Exactly. Here's the world. Do what you want with them. But I wonder mm-hmm. if that's ultimately a way to keep the line healthier. I mean, look at Warren Ellis with the Wildstorm. There were supposed to be four titles by this point, mm-hmm. and may- maybe Ellis is is too involved to be the shepherd of the line that Gaiman can be. Gaiman's name means almost more than his pen at this point. Just his yeah. seal of approval matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one question about this issue in particular that I wanted to ask. Sure. And it's a, it's a small question, but how do you think this will be collected? This particular issue in terms of like, yeah, will this, are they, what you're asking is, are they going to split up the stories? Into yeah. The four- Which I don't think, so I guess there are different options. Yeah. I could see a case where, you know, you either have the option where in each of the four trades for each of the series, this issue gets reprinted at the front, mm-hmm. which is like a very New 52 thing to do, yes. I feel like. You could get a case where it just excises the individual stories and places it at the front as kind of like a little zero issue snippet. But that seems kind of strange to me. Um, 
I feel like the third case could be you get this like Sandman universe trade that has this issue and, and the first, first issues. issues. Yeah. Uh huh. And then you get the the other trades that still contain you know issues like one through six or something like that, but you miss out on this. Well, aside from the okay, so the dreaming story is somewhat complete, right? You could even have the collection have Daniel go off, you know, have that initial interaction and then come back and say that, you know, that they lost him. You essentially just pull out the three sections in the middle and the mm-hmm. dreaming story can work reasonably well. I think that the House of Whispers story can work without Matthew at all. If you just pulled him out, does it? Does, <laughs> yeah. Does he have, and same with Books of Magic, right? Uh, definitely with House of Whispers, you could just pull out word balloons. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and even Books of Magic, if you didn't have that, like, first page where the, like, dream is blowing up and he yells, wake up, and you could just open up on that page that's, like, London, England, just a dream, yeah. and then you could go from there, definitely. Um, the Lucifer one, you would definitely still need to have him as a part of. Yeah. Um I don't know, that's really It's not a huge question. thing. Uh, yeah, I just thought about it. Um Yeah, I, it's just an interesting thing because like with the DC Universe one shot, that got collected as its own thing. Right. Uh, because it was longer, it had some some backup material which like who knows, maybe they'll do something like that for this. Maybe we'll get like a a small trade that is just this issue, maybe some like, um, you know, just pencil pages in the back, uh, an essay from Gaiman, and you you sell it as a fifteen dollar hardcover or something. Yeah, deluxe hardcover. That's an excellent point. I I really do wonder about that, huh? So my question for you before we move on to our next title here is. Of these four titles, because, you know, we've never really talked, and this is probably a better off-air conversation than on-air conversation, about, like, how closely we're going to cover the Vertigo relaunch. Mm -hmm. Um, How many of these four books do you think you're going to be trying to read monthly? I'm going to try to read all of them, and I I think, um, as far as Vertigo goes, Sandman is very much still a part of the DC universe to me. And so I can um I can see myself following these consistently whereas other Vertigo books uh like Border Town those types of things I might be more inclined to tail off after a few issues if it's not really my thing. Yeah. Border Town has one amazing connection to the DC universe. Really? Uh, it's it's a small joke, essentially, but I'm okay. not going to spoil it for you because it's a wonderful thing to read. Okay. Um, okay. Interesting. But I don't. I don't. Um, I, I mean, to be fair, I feel like that joke. It, if it didn't use the name of the character it's referencing, it could have been an, like an image book, and you wouldn't have batted an eye. It's not mm-hmm. like it's a huge. It's not like you know. Um, it's not like finding the Watchman button in the middle of this, you know, story. It's just like it's the a button. small the button. It's just a small little reference, but it's a fun one. Okay. Yeah, that book's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, I use that as an example because it's the only one I could think of off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but not that I'm not expecting to like it. Yeah, it's just literally the only one I could think of. Here's something that, that you'll appreciate: uh, a MAGA chud got on me on Twitter about reviewing it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, oh, it, it was so obvious that both creators tweeted at me and were like, "You did nothing wrong. Don't don't just just ignore that guy." Because I, I essentially, so just to, to give a little context here, the story takes place literally on a border town between Mexico and the United States, but there's also monsters in this book. And so I mentioned that a character had escaped from Mexico, and this guy was like, huh, escaped because Mexico's a shitty prison, right? And so I actually went back and I changed my wording. I said, you know, uh, I think if you read the issue you will understand the tone in which I was trying to elicit with that word choice. But your point is valid. Like, I don't want it to make it sound like Mexico is a terrible place. I, uh, I, so I, I was like, thank you for your note. And the guy basically said, like, no, I was serious. Mexico is a terrible place. Nice. Yeah. So. Internet's a great place. <laughs> it is. It is. But anyway, let's let's jump off Vertigo and and uh, plant our feet firmly in DC soil to talk about Supergirl number twenty one, written by Mark Andreco, illustrated by Kevin McGuire. Uh, Zach, I don't know if I'm alone on this. This was a goddamn delight. This was fantastic. I can't believe that Vince is missing this week. There is so much, so many things this week. That I feel like he would just love to be talking about. And this is one of them. And my goodness, Brian, this is a such a delight. First of all, I am not typically the biggest fan of FCO Placencia's coloring. But this issue is, oh, one, interesting, of, really? is one of, yeah, I, I just, I don't, I tend to not notice their work that much. Um, like, you know, there are some colorists that I feel like jump off the page to me. And I've never felt that mm-hmm. way about FCO. But this is so perfectly colored. It just, it's, I can't wait to, I have not gotten my print copy of this yet from my shop yet. I can't wait to read this on that new paper stock. Oh, yeah. It's going to look so beautiful. Man, I don't, I don't want to disparage any previous Supergirl creators work. Um, I think that many of the like past Supergirl books of the past, you know, past decade have been really good and interesting. Like the, the Sterling Gates run had its, had things going for it. The Orlando run, even that um, new 52 run that was very different. Uh huh. Some, yeah, there were parts of that, that I really enjoyed, but like, this is the most prestigious and like high profile. I think a Supergirl book has, ever felt yeah and kevin mcguire i mean he the guy's a legend and when you read this issue it's instantly clear why oh it's beautiful it looks so good and oh my goodness brian i think we're gonna be singing the praises of been to superman for many months to come but i think that this is like one of the things that could easily be overlooked as a beautiful thing to come out of that but like this book feels as important and as high quality as either Superman or action does. Yeah. Like this, this is on par with those. This feels like, and we've kind of said this in the past, but this feels like the most deliberately planned out super line in many, many years. 
Oh yeah, like at least since the Johns years, and yeah, yeah, I would say that. It's it's just I mean, first of all, Kara's like motivations and attitude feel so spot on. Mm-hmm. Clark feels perfectly Clark in this issue. Like the note yes. he writes her <laughs> is just so the smiley face in the note. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's just ah. Oh. Gosh. The scene on in Smallville where he comes to talk to her and she's sitting on the hay the haystacks. Yeah, yeah. That's such a beautifully drawn scene, and just the tone it sets is so. Oh, man, I love this issue, and I love what it means, or like the the ties it brings into the greater DC universe. Like that's another thing that I love about this Bendis run is how much it. It's a Superman story, but it's very, very clearly set in like cosmic DC. Yes. Which is something that we at the DC three have been clamoring for for a long time. But um, like the way Hal is using this is really great. Yep. Um, this feels like, and I'm already thinking like, oh, this feels like the Hal that we're gonna get in Morrison's run. Yes, and I wonder Come- if that's intentionally like a. Uh... If, if there were conversations about that, you know, how do you want to use Hal in the run? And then uh-huh. how should we have him appear here? Yeah, this is wonderful. And, like, I've never been the biggest fan of Vendraco's work, not because of any slight against him, but I just, like, have typically not liked a lot of the properties that he has worked on. Like, I didn't really care for the Adam Strange, mm-hmm. uh, Hawkman stuff. And see, I really um, like that series. Yeah, see, I didn't really care for that. He, I feel like he just is usually on characters or or concepts that I'm just like not super into. Um, like, I really can't remember. He did he did that Batwoman run for a while, which I'll admit, like, I didn't read that because I wasn't reading that book at that point anyway. Because I I like stopped reading during the um the J.H. Williams, Trevor oh. McCarthy bit. Um, but it's so, it's so nice for him to like come on and get to do his own thing. Even though this isn't like a new number one, this is like very much a fresh start. Yeah. I wonder why this wasn't given a new number one. I really don't know. I, it's, it seems weird. It doesn't really make sense. And it ultimately doesn't really matter, but my, do you want to hear my fear about this? My fear is that sure. they've only committed to like six or eight issues of it. Yeah, I could see that. I uh, yeah, um, which you know we'll see where the story goes. Yes, maybe maybe they only maybe they only have that much story in mind. Maybe this is a kind of like a Mara Queen of Atlantis type thing. Yeah, yeah. Which it's sad that like maybe they feel like female characters can only carry like side story type things and you know only maybe they can only commit that i don't know that's that seems like a weird line of thought to go down not that i mean we've seen that kind of thinking in um like predominantly male fandoms for a long time so yeah. but that's especially um, absurd with supergirl being a successful television show and supposedly right. being spun off into a movie now too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So you um, know, if, if it can survive in that environment, 
then you would think it would survive fine here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely, like, if, if there's not a story, if they don't have a story, you know, if Bendis and Draco, like, only have six to eight issues mapped out for this, then I'm glad it'll happen. It's really good. Yeah. Supergirl and Crypto going through space. Oh, man. Crypto. Doing detective work. <laughs> yeah, first of all, so, so, you know I'm a dog guy, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's that scene where she starts to cry. And crypto looks at her and whines. Oh God, man, that's uh, that's my jam right there. The uh, the next page where they're they're launching and <laughs> crypto is just like sitting in the passenger seat. <laughs> Adorable. Yeah, yeah. And like you know, it's there's sort of a mysterious tease at the end of this of sort of you know a villain that's behind everything. And while that's cool and all, I really don't even care. Like, I just mm-hmm. want I just want to enjoy this ride. Yeah. Yeah, this is really good. I mean, we've got three fantastic Superman books right now. I mean, maybe it's too early to say on action. I don't think so. It's been an issue. But, like, we've got two issues of Superman now, and we'll get to that eventually. But uh, this line is really good now. Yeah. We should mention that now that Vince has passed, we can do books out of alphabetical order. That's, we can. It's very important to put out there, because um, Vince was always very serious about doing books strictly in alphabetical order, with no exceptions ever. You're right. Like, I mean, uh, we've never released any of the recordings. They're out there of the hours we would spend just discussing about the possibility of doing something out of alphabetical order, and maybe now that he's gone, we can release those. Yeah, we'll see. You know, the ABC tapes. Yeah. Uh, after we release the Snyder Cut, we yeah. will release this. Um, all right, let's talk about the last issue of Eternity Girl. So this is by uh, Max Visaggio, illustrated by and Sonny Liu. Um, and, you know, we were talking before the show about the books we wanted to sort of focus on in this first half of the show. And we mentioned this book, and I was quick to say, like, I, I want to talk about this book, even though... I don't think that anything really surprising happened in this issue. And I don't mean that as an insult necessarily. It just seems like this book very clearly set out what it was going to be over the course of its six issues. And then it followed through on that. And while I really enjoyed it, I don't think there's a, again, there was not a moment in this issue that felt unexpected to me. Is that fair or am I being unfair to the book? No, I think that's fair. Um, I agree with you. I st- I still adore the issue so much. Oh, it's great. Um, it's fantastic. This is um this is such like a Morrisonian concept, but in a way, so we'll get to another book that tie that gets into like Morrisonian DC ideas mm-hmm. um like very explicitly. But this feels like new and fresh and unique whereas the other thing that we'll talk about later is just kind of cashing in a little bit um this is like such a good distillation of um of kind of comic bookness um and just and all the things that i love about comics and and really just like stories in general um especially like sci-fi fantasy type stories that deal with like alternate uh realities and things there's a lot of dark tower vibes in here 
especially you know there's a shining tower that is kind of like very much a dark tower analog which like i i adore that series um but i i love how this ends i i love kind of the um the emotional revelations that caroline has in this issue um i thought it all rang really true it it was maybe again maybe kind of to echo one of your 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 thoughts about shade the changing woman uh, maybe a little rushed see i didn't feel this was rushed at all i <laughs> see i thought this i thought that if that's interesting because I, I felt like this was maybe just as in terms of yeah i thought that i thought that this felt the same that's inter- that's really interesting okay um i in terms of the way that this the beats were being handled and the kind of the way that these concepts and and ideas and and emotional revelations were being presented and even the way it ends it almost kind of ends in a very similar fashion where you have you know the death of the old and the beginning of the new mm-hmm. they end in a very similar place i thought it tracked very closely and it makes me wonder if this is the kind of the, the um the beats we're going to be getting in the remaining two young animal books as well that is interesting yeah I, young animal is is a really tough thing to project out past the end of the, these few issues like we know mm-hmm. we're getting doom patrol 12 by the end of the year um oh are we yeah they just announced someone's doing the art for it um who is it hang on There's great radio here. Um, we're doing it. This is one of the things we're known for. Uh, Dan McDade is uh, filling in the final issue. I guess, Interesting. Because I guess okay. Dan is on to his uh, Bendis Batman uh, story. Uh-huh. So I, I guess yeah. he, okay. he's not, um, not going to be I, I this. I'm really surprised. I thought they was just going to... I thought it was just going to be done, you know. It looks like it's October thirty first is coming out. Interesting. Yeah, I just thought that it, it wouldn't come out because I thought that the story kind of ended, um, and since it seemed like they were wrapping everything else up, that it, that was just going to be it. Yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting. I don't know if there was a falling out between Way and DC, or if this was always planned, or if just schedules took over or if they're really coming back to this or if they're just abandoning this concept by by saying like yeah we finished these batch of stories and maybe we'll be back one day i really have no idea what what the future holds for young animal and i'm kind of bummed about that because i i wish they were just a little bit more clear about what was happening but i understand why they're not also yeah yeah i think that um i think it's probably a lot of things like one wade's way not wade ways lateness um which could be attributed to a lot of things you know he's doing more um umbrella academy it's mm-hmm. getting turned into a tv show yep. right yeah, i think looks, yeah yeah. T- uh, yeah tv show um you know maybe vertigo has something to do with this they don't want to have overlap there or or you know hinder vertigo's success um yeah, I don't know. I I would be surprised if this was the last we got of Young Animal, but 
I don't know. We'll see. That's interesting. I'm glad that we have Doom Patrol 12 to look forward to. I didn't know that. Yeah. I wonder, too, if DC just feels like they have a lot of imprints going right now. And so maybe when the Wildstorm winds down, they'll revisit this. Or, you know, who knows? Because that Bendis imprint is supposed to be starting up pretty soon. And, uh, you know, the Killing Zone, the uh, Johns imprint starting up next year. And the Wildstorm... And Vertigo and the Sandman universe, and uh, you know, it's just there's just so much out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And Jinx World on top of that too. Yeah, that's crazy. We get the first book of that next week. Yeah, and I've never read a Jinx World title really. So I tried reading Powers once. It was uh, it was a, it was interesting. It was a it thing. Was a thing. Uh, any more yeah, notes on the Eternity Girl? Um, no, this was very good. I liked it. Sonny Liu is, is amazing. Uh, he, he is incredible. That um, page of like all the different reality versions all converging together in that tower is, uh, amazing. Just, just visually stunning and still having an emotional resonance. Yeah. Felt very inspired by The Last Jedi. I was just going to say that. Yeah. The mirror scene. Yeah. Just um, someone snapping. But yeah, really good. Uh, Sonny Liu. What a, what a creator. I don't know if you saw coming out of uh, San Diego, but he is um, going to be writing uh, an Adventure Time Season 11 comic I did for Boom. That. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about that. You, we're, we're big Adventure Time people in this house, the Wilkerson household. You, uh, you still have to read the art of Charlie Chan Hak Chai. His, yeah, uh, his you're right. Man. That's amazing. Uh, just incredible. But yeah, uh, congratulations, Max Visaggio and Sunny Liu, on such a unique and fun miniseries. Mm-hmm. Speaking of last issues, we get the last issue of How Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, written by Robert Venditti, illustrated by Rafa Sandoval, and this is um, this is an end to what is essentially the second longest Green Lantern run of the 21st century, which is a crazy thing to say. It doesn't really feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, although I have to say, I kind of dug this issue in parts. It, yeah, it definitely had some good things to it. Um, it when I say it doesn't, it just doesn't get it just doesn't get like the pomp and circumstance that you would expect from that statement. Right. Um, I, as I just said, I do think it takes the easy way out in a lot of ways. There's a like, for instance, uh, you know, uh, Tomar Two is this you know horrible dark star. But he finds it in his heart to ask for forgiveness before he dies. Like that's just the, that's just a very easy comic book ending. I'm gonna yeah I I did not like the resolution to that to that whole thing. It didn't sit well with me. Agreed. I don't feel like there was an in story in character reason need for him to kill himself. Yeah. Uh, maybe I maybe that's just like my reading, and maybe I, no, I don't know. I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think I understand why, from a storytelling perspective, like 
there's there's no real new Tomar two stories to be told. I don't think. And so, no. if you're gonna use him in any way, you might as well use him as an object lesson that will just you know, in reinforcing the idea that everyone can change, but also reinforcing well, like the idea of guilt. You know, I don't know. Do you want to like my reading on it and like why it doesn't sit well with me? Is like it doesn't feel like he, he changed, or it, it seems like he took his like sense of um of you know like corporal punishment judgment revenge and just turned it on himself yep like he he sought violent justice against himself and so like for how to say or for him to say like you know tell them i was good and for how to say like he he died a better man it doesn't really ring true it seems like he died the way he he lived. Yeah, I, I, I guess he's, I guess he sees a difference here between, like, the concept of justice and what he deserves. You know, he says, you know, I was wrong, but I, but I think I still deserve to die, which, I guess there's, I guess there's a way that that can ring true, but I, I felt like that was just a very a very unnecessary tone at the end of the story. Like I think if the story is supposed to be about how people can change, then him living out the rest of his life in the science cells is a way more compelling argument for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Uh, aside from that, we get a little bit of, of Zod stuff here. Uh, we see, Hector Hammond disappear into space, which I'm sure won't be picked up on for a very long time. Um, this was fine. This was, uh, there, there were a couple of fun moments, but it's fine. You know, it's not, it's not, yeah. ground, it's not groundbreaking at all. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I definitely think that on the whole, this uh, rebirth run of Hal Jordan, the green lanterns has just been like just okay. There have been, I think the standout arc for me was the Larflees arc on the, on whatever race Tomar two, Tomar Ray, they are whatever race they are on their home world with like Brainiac and Larflees. Uh-huh. I think that was my favorite arc of this series of this, of this run. Um, I really enjoyed. I, I've I've probably said this before, but I really enjoyed like Vendetti's run when he first started. Probably like from when he started until the DCU when uh when how YOU when how got like the yeah yeah like all all of that I really liked because it felt really interesting, you know, unique. The uh, all of the books, you know, barring like Red Lanterns. Um, but even Red Lantern, I think with like the Peter Milligan stuff, which was not good. Um, but post that, it was pretty good. And um, there were a lot of really interesting things there. And he introduced a lot of cool new characters who actually open this issue. They don't talk, um, but they're in there. I think like this run focused way more on the the Earth Lanterns, which I just generally kind of find less interesting. I think 
I, I maybe I yeah, I think I've realized I don't really like when like all four Earth Lanterns are together, I or think, even worse, like when all six are together. I, I think part of that is just because they never do anything interesting with them when they're together. Yeah, they really don't. All it just tends to be like this threat is too big for one of us. Let's get the whole gang in here. But there's no reason yeah. to have those four lanterns do anything. Right, right. Whereas, like, at the beginning of this kind of era of Green Lantern, you had Hal in the main book, and he had his kind of interesting side cast of, of lanterns, and then John was in uh, Green Lantern Corps, and he had his own cast of interesting lanterns, and then Kyle was off doing the New Guardians thing, and and uh, Guy was a Red Lantern. He had, the, Each book had a really unique side cast mm-hmm. um, to pair with each Earth Lantern. And then when they all did meet up, it felt, you know, really interesting because they were all coming from different places. This book was very much um, all of them together, not really doing anything interesting. Yeah. Um, this book also, at the end of it, with almost no explanation, <laughs> really takes away the entire Kyle and Carol romance that was going on for a while that I never particularly cared for. Um, yeah. How just basically says, like, I'm back, baby, and they make up. Yeah. And Which was up. another Venditti, you know, machination, I think. Like, it was orchestrated more in the New Guardians book um, that Justin Jordan was writing. But it, it was very much of that era. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. this kind of feels like a uh, a real end point for all those stories. Uh, yeah, I agree. And it, it looks like Kyle Rayner is going to die in Heroes in Crisis. <laughs> what which, the? Why? Which makes me want to cry. <laughs> it makes me so angry. <sighs> Of all, oh yeah, that's the worst. It's going to be Kyle. We we didn't we kind of skipped over this. We have so many books to talk about, but just thinking about that, it's like one of these six heroes is going to die, and it's Harley Quinn who's never going to die, Red Robin mm-hmm. who they just killed, so they're not going to kill him again, Cyborg who's getting his own movie, so they're not going to kill him, um, uh, Roy Harper who just showed up in the mm-hmm. Red Hood Annual as a potential new outlaw, so they're not going to kill him, and. Uh, and and Booster Gold, who I can't see them killing Booster. I could see it either being Roy or Kyle. Yeah, two of um, my five just to piss you off. Yeah, exactly, just to piss you off. But Kyle, I feel like is the most likely because of those characters. He, uh, other than Booster, who King has like highlighted recently, Kyle is the one that he has written and probably has the most emotional investment in. And I could totally see him being like a kill your darlings kind of guy and. Um. Yeah, I'm not down for that. I mean, we definitely have too many lanterns right now, but but we have too gosh, many. Omega Man was so good. <laughs> yeah, not but not only that, we have too many lanterns because they've chosen to be lazy with the lanterns. Like, yeah, if Kyle was still the White Lantern, that's a totally different. I mean, look, it's still his own colored lantern. Don't get me wrong, but you can do so many different but things. It's different, yeah, yeah, with him. But you know, or if like guy, or if like Kyle was on Titans or something instead of being a, you know, predominantly a Green Lantern, yeah. core member. So you know, just yeah, I don't know. That is like one thing I can I will like say in praise of. of 
um, this not this particular era, but like the beginning of the Vidinity run again is like each character had an interesting place to be. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll take yeah. a break right now, and then we'll kind of fly through the rest of the books when we come back. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with a discussion of Catwoman number two, written and illustrated by Joelle Jones. Again, the week Vince is in here, because he's beyond the, the grave, um, we just get more of, like, Vince Nip. And while you and I both love Joelle Jones, I think Vince loves Joelle Jones more than either of us do by a long shot. He's just, he's, you know, he's, he's borderline creepy obsessed with it. I'm kidding. Um, but he, he just, he loves her work so much. And this issue is just an unbelievably gorgeous, really fun, really visually engaging Catwoman story. Yes. Yeah. It It's, it's so pretty. It's so well drawn, and it does the thing that I love. Where, uh, it, I mean, it's kind of a breezy read. There's not a lot of words, and it works so much better because of that. Absolutely. Um, I love that splash page where she walks into the room. It's just so framed so well. Um, the whole fight sequence at the beginning is really, really well um, choreographed and everything. Um, the way color is used, kind of alternating between like the main purple and then, you know, adding in some like other splashes of color. It's so good. It's yeah, this is a great book. Yeah, Laura Allred on colors again, just doing really, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's not a ton to say about this issue, because like you said, it is a pretty breezy read without a ton of dialogue, but it just further establishes this status quo for Wonder Woman. I mean, Wonder Woman, excuse me, Catwoman. My goodness, is late. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I uh, I think this is a really, really smart style book for Selena to be starring in right now. Like, it, it highlights all that's good about her without without making it overly cheesecakey without making it overly dependent on Bruce. It's just, it's giving her a nice sort of solo adventure here that does tie into Batman in parts, but not, you know, not detrimentally so. Right, right. In fact, it's almost, it's really not cheesecake at all, and it's only very tangentially dependent on Bruce. Yeah. I mean, outside of the the mention of the, the, uh, the, the ring, there's really not a lot tying it to that no i think the i think the book would feel a little bit uh perhaps empty if you didn't read the batman set that led up to it just because you wouldn't know why she's in this particular situation right yes yeah um but yeah nice work joel keep it up 
That brings us to Detective Comics number 986, written by uh, Brian Edward Hill, illustrated by Philippe Briones. Um, you know, we, we talked before we came on the air about how we liked just about every book that came out this week and how we liked some more than others. And uh, I felt this was a really great issue. I don't know how you felt about this issue. I I thought that th- th- this one was just okay. This was not one of the ones that I came away from really high on compared to some of the others. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I I'm a I'm a old school outsiders Black Lightning Mark, so this mm-hmm. stuff really really connects with me, especially the um the katana reveal at the end. But I I think that Hill has done a really good job of establishing who Jefferson Pierce is right now um, without it being reductive. You know, yes, he's a teacher and that's a big part of the story, but it's not, I think sometimes that that's the only thing writers cling on to about Black Lightning is that he's a teacher. And this seems to have a little bit more behind it than that. And I, I appreciate that. I thought this issue was kind of weird in that it felt like the end of the arc for yes, the majority of the issue. Yeah. And then the end was like very um, anticlimactic is not the right word, but well, I don't know what you use to describe a story that you feel like has had its, you know, peak and then you're getting into the falling action of the story only to find out that the story is not over. Right. Yeah. I can agree with that. Um, what did you think of Philippe Briones' art? Uh, I I thought it was pretty good, actually. I thought um, it had some tones of of like Barrows, and so stylistically, this this um, arc feels really close to the Tanyan run still to me, and I think both in tone as well, you know, you're still dealing with a lot of the same characters. Cass is still very much at the forefront of the story. This feels very much like a transitionary thing between, uh, the Gotham Knights and, uh, the outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. And, and once this arc ends, then we get that James Robinson fill in arc before the, um, the Pete Tomasi, Doug Monkey arc that will lead into number 1000 yes yeah so we've got one more issue of this yeah i believe i believe you are correct maybe two no it looks like it looks like 88 988 is the first robinson one okay and i don't know when the um the tomasi one starts december i believe it's december okay I believe December is when both Tomasi and um, Kelly Sue DeConnick take over the books. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's dig into Hawkman number three, written by Rod Venditti, illustrated by Brian Hitch. Um, this is this is you know still more really really fun Hawkman stuff. It's. There are parts of it that are so Brian Hitchy in the art, and I mean that both in good and bad ways. Um, but you know, you you put Hawkman on Dinosaur Island, you have him unstuck in time and meeting former versions of himself. Like all that's awesome for me. All that's exactly what I want a Hawkman story to be. 
Yeah, I think this may be, may be my favorite thing that I've ever read from Venditti or Hitch, maybe. No, I take, I mean, Hitch, no. obviously, I was the authority, say, so I take you that You know back. who you're talking to. Yeah. You're okay. talking, I'm talking talk, to a huge authority talk, fan, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that was a, <laughs> that's almost how I kind of almost um have, like, a mental divide, you know, past, like, the the year, like, 2010, where everything resets, and I think about creators... Hitch, Hitch, like in the the 2010s, is a different quantity <laughs> here, but um, but no, yeah, this is um, this is really really good. I think um, artistically, I I really do like where the story's going to. Um, yeah, this is just another case of where um, DC like has really just kind of taken this like post metal status quo and run in so many really great directions with all these books and it feels really um cohesive but also the scope is very large um you know between books like this and the unexpected and sideways and justice league um this is like a really unique era of dc i feel like yeah i agree with that I, uh, and it's so weird that it's all tied around nth metal of all things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also think that this book will read very differently. And I think... Um, I don't know if it will read better in trade or worse in trade, but I think it will read very differently in trade. Mm-hmm. I think it will read really well in trade. In fact, I was actually kind of thinking about that when I was reading it. Um, I, I think it will read really well. I uh, Man, I love that last page. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. So good. <laughs> I cannot believe how much I enjoy this book. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think we were all upset because you know, the implication was that Jeff Lemire was going to be writing a Hawkman book. And, uh, and when it was announced that it was Hitch, it felt a little more safe than perhaps we would have liked. But this has been, I mean, not Hitch, uh, Venditti, but this is excellent. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. You know what I was thinking about the other day? We still don't have a release date for the uh, Inferior 5 book that Lemire and, D- and Giffen are doing. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, see? Yeah. Huh. Well, let's talk about Michael Cray. Written by Brian Hill again, uh, and illustrated by N. Stephen Harris. I know that uh, we've sort of had differing opinions about this book early on, but I think we've all come around to sort of like this arc. What did you think of this issue? Um, it it was fine. I I'm not terribly invested in this. Still, I like this arc better than the kind of uh, Monster of the Week Justice League arc um but again i i just i don't think i would like this or care very much about it if it weren't wildstorm related i think that's fair i think this issue is fine i don't really have too much to say about this issue um i still think this is an odd choice to be the second wildstorm book and i was thinking about that as i was reading this book this issue this week like huh so this is where they want you know the next half of the Wildstorm to be sort of spinning out of, but that's okay. 
It's fun. It's good enough. Um, speaking of fun and good enough, that's exactly how I describe Plastic Man number three. Written by Gail Simone, illustrated by Adrian Mello. Have you seen the controversy about this issue? No, I haven't. All right, so I have to say, for I want to put out there from the front, good for Gail Simone. Because Gail Simone took it on the chin and uh, and really was 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 great about it. So there's a shot of Plastic Man when he has contorted himself to look like Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. And this is getting pretty uh, pretty specific and graphic here. It looks like he has a bit of a bulge where his dong would be. I see that, yeah. And uh, supposedly, it, Simone said, you know, the way she wrote it and the way it was illustrated was that it was, you know, that this is still very much eel transforming into somebody else, and that he doesn't actually become somebody else. It's still him. He's just posing become another else. person. Become <laughs> another person. <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of people in the trans community who felt this was an insult. Um, that this was implying something that wasn't there. And I have to say, like I said, I said, Simone, Simone really took it on the chin and said, like, you know, this was not my intention, but what I what I think doesn't matter, what the trans community feels matters, and we're going to change it for the trade, and I'm very, very sorry. And so good for her for doing that, even though, again, I believe her. I believe that there was no malintent with this. Hmm. Do you disagree? Yeah, I no, I no, yeah, I uh I'm just kind of process. Yeah, I I didn't notice that mostly because I read it really quickly. Same. Um and and again, it's one of those things where I um I don't know how that I don't I don't know how that feels. Exactly, yeah. You know, to to I don't know what kind of feelings that that would evoke. So it's almost one of those things where, again, I think like, yeah, I think you take the same tack that Gail Simone takes. You say like, if this is upsetting, then I, then I apologize and I'll fix it. Yeah. I think there's a big difference between what she did and saying, I'm sorry if this offended you, it wasn't my intention. Like that right. that feels like it rings a little bit false, whereas she was saying, like, my feelings here don't matter and so whatever exactly. has to happen will happen. Right, right. Because it's like, you know, unless you are a, a trans person or someone who identifies like finds some identity in that way, then you really have like no context or anything. So And it's such a yeah. small, minor part of the story. That changing it for the trade won't trade won't change how the story unfolds at all. No, not at all. So what's the harm? Yeah, and in fact, and it seems like it could it would be a pretty easy fix anyway. I mean, yeah. like I'm not a Photoshop pro, but it seems like if you just um, basically like moved the like almost kind of just like erase that little section, just made it like straight, you know. Yeah. Instead of like having that curve, um, and just made it like skin tone, and you know, just move the line like a, a, a little smidge. It, it, you know, it's yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's a not a yeah. I, I think the moral of the story is just good on Gail Simone. Yeah, I agree. 
Uh, and this issue is fine. You know, this book is a lot of fun. There were there were a couple of moments in this book that I I, I did chuckle, and uh, you know, I think that this is bordering on the type of Plastic Man story that I don't want it to be. But it never quite goes that far. Like, I I just think Plastic Man is a character that works best in a team context, and be a little bit obnoxious on his own. But there's nothing in this issue that is so overtly obnoxious that I can't enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, there's like a bit of Deadpool here going on a little bit, you know. Um, but but it's fine. There was a there was one thing. Oh oh, I remember. Did you do you get any like Chaken vibes from this? I actually did, yes. And yeah, not in a bad way. Yeah, yeah, kind of the same. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, so let's talk Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 25. This is a, an extra... We get, it's funny, we got two extra size anniversary issues this week for a uh, a monthly book and a bi-weekly book. So one of them was 25, one of them was 50, but the same... Uh, same length of time the book has been coming out and the same, you know, slightly oversized issue. Um, but this issue was written by Scott Lobdell and had a really impressive art crew on it. Um, we have Dexter Soy, we have Trevor Harrison, and uh, who else is on this book? I'm trying to... Get uh, Phil Hester is the other penciler. Yeah, Phil Hester. Uh, what did you think of this issue? I liked this a lot. Um, still, I, you know, I keep singing Red Hood and the Outlaws' praises, and this really felt like the culminate, like a really satisfying and and well earned culmination to this arc. Um, you know, it's weird to think like. I've been enjoying this book for a long time. I, I was reminded via another issue that we'll talk about later that there was a you know a time not that long ago where I was not engaged with this book with like the Artemis side arc, and that feels like another book entirely. That feels so long ago, um, but I've loved this arc. It kind I'm kind of sad that it seems like this book is gonna at least for. A little while be a Jason and Todd solo joint. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how long it'll be before we see Artemis and Bizarro again. But um, on the whole, I really, really liked this issue a lot. I it had some really, really good Jason and Bruce moments. I yes. think, um, now, which I didn't really my, expect. Refresh my memory. We don't know for sure that he didn't kill Cobblepot yet, do we? I think we he's not dead yet. Oh, that's what it is. Yes, he's in he's in the he's in a coma or something. Yeah, yeah, or like critical condition or something. Yeah. Strangely, even though he was shot at point blank range, which <laughs> Yeah. You definitely get the impression that like I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What how do you read that? Do you feel like Jason had murderous intent or do you think this is again like part of his long con? I feel like this is part of his long con for a couple of reasons. I feel like it 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 aids the story better that way, but also it feels like it's a um 
it feels like they're never going to kill the penguin. Right, right. So you don't even introduce that idea. Yeah, although although I think like there is a they they may not have the intention of killing the penguin, but they may have the intention of having like Jason you know, there's it matters whether or not he was intentionally trying to kill him or if this is all like a facade. Right. Um I don't know. I what did you think of the backup or the epilogue? Well, first, those are two very different questions for me. Um, I really liked the backup, which was like part of the epilogue, sort right, of. Right, but but I but I <laughs> yeah. really liked that part a lot. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Especially, I liked, it was nice seeing Creeper around. You know, overall, I thought that was that was really effective. What did you? Th- I I have slightly more mixed feelings on the other part. I don't really know what happened. Right. I, I, so let, let, let's try and piece this together together here. Okay. So I forget what this character's name is. The um, the woman who's like, she's been throughout this run. Yeah, when, yeah. She's like the head of this orphanage ran, that yeah, Jason orphanage, was part exactly, of. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there's this character, Willis, that shows up. Yes. Who... And it, it seems impl- so. That's her son. Yes. Um. And then. And imp- oh, go ahead. Doesn't it imply then that her grandson is possibly Jason? Yes, but we've seen Jason's. You, I feel like you, there's the implication that he. Well, she she calls him her son, and then calls Jason, or it seems to be saying that Jason's her grandson, and so the implication that this guy is Jason's dad. But then he like he splits up into Infinity War dust at some point too. This guy. He does. Man, I yeah. miss that. Yeah, like. Or, just, or I just him. like forgot. Oh, you're right. He does, and he also has three faces, and also we've seen Jason's dad. Yeah, so I think this might just be a hallucination or something. But then she's in a bottle? Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. I don't understand this at all. Um, That's a, I, I don't necessarily dislike it, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, me either. Um, but I did really like the backup with this, like, Outlaws team that I think we caught, like, a bit of... Um, that in the previous issue as well wasn't Bizarro watching like a video of this team's adventures previously, but I don't I don't think we've ever actually had this team in a comic, right? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where this is. Go- that was what I found was so interesting about this issue is that the beginning of the issue is a relatively straightforward conclusion to the arc that we're reading, and or at least a. a, a the the end of the fir- of this of this like era of of the outlaws right, but then mm-hmm. we get this this epilogue that is really visually interesting, but I don't really understand, and I'm intrigued to see where it goes next. Yeah, when did Scott Lobdell get so good? I don't know. This, this is crazy. I'm interested to see if he can keep it up. Um, what do you think of the new Red Hood look? 
I, you know, it's one of those things where I think I have to see it in an issue first uh-huh. to see how it works in with with movement. But I, I think it's an interesting. I don't. Know, it looks a little too baney for me. It does look baney, but on the other hand, he is actually wearing a red hood. So yes, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> yeah, to be thankful for small miracles here. Um, let's continue to go through the books. Talk about Sideways number seven. Written by Dan DiDio, illustrated by Kenneth Rockefort. Um Rockefort has not been on every issue of this series, but he seems to be far more invested. Um, in... Not as the artist. I'm sorry? What was that? Oh, no. Did I lose Are you? Are you there? You there? Yeah. Yeah, we, we lost each other there for just a second. Oh, sorry. Um, so what were you saying about Rockefort? Um... So Rockefort here, I didn't. He is credited like as the sole creator of Sideways. I don't know if you saw that in the. I did. Yes. Uh, he he has been on. He has not been the artist for every issue, but I guess maybe he has been plotting every issue. I'm, I'd have to go back. No, and because originally the deal was plotting it with Justin Jordan doing. You were right. Yeah, you're right. Dialogue. Uh, but what I was going to say is, it seems like Rockefort is on this book in the long term, in the way that no other New Age of Heroes artist has been on the book. Yeah. Um, so let's let's not bury the lead here. Uh, the Seven Soldiers kind of are back here. Not it's even like slip- kind of, just like full on <laughs> back. Well, but it's not the Seven Soldiers we necessarily knew before. Is it not? It seems like, very I- much like they are. I mean, no. What I mean is, like, with Sideways as a part of it, like, it's you know, okay. it's a, it's it, it's a new, it's it's attempting to start a new iteration of this. Right, right, but um, it's like a, it's like a direct continuation. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. They even like reference the the villains of the Seven Soldiers story and everything, and this yeah. is like a direct continuation of that. Which, you know, when this book was announced, it was announced with Morrison coming on at some point and like we know he's doing that annual issue here in a couple of months but um I'm really surprised that he's not credited in this or involved in this arc at all um because this is no one else has like ever touched these these characters as a group together yeah I don't think I also think it's it's that Dan DiDio is probably the only guy who could have Shiloh Norman in a monthly book right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, like, so when I was talking about Eternity Girl and, like, Morrisonian concepts, like, I kind of, I alluded to this book maybe, like, a little disparagingly because this feels like, um... This isn't bad at all. In fact, this is actually, I really like this issue a lot. And I love that these characters are getting used again. But um, it felt, I don't even really know how to describe the the thing about it that bothers me. It It, feels a little bit like plug and play, right? You're just taking these characters and putting them in here without, without too much of your own spin on it. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. It's like it's kind of a very fan servicey thing. 
which is odd because I don't know how many fans of Seven Soldiers are out there. I mean, I'm a fan of it, but you know, you don't you understand what I'm yeah. saying? Like, it's right, right, it, right. I mean, to like to like hardcore Morrison people, like this is this is huge, um, because it's essentially like a direct continuation of this is like when like Tomasi and Gleason did uh, multiplicity, you know? Right. And, and and continued multiversity basically. Um, I, I like this issue a lot. Yeah. So did I, I thought there was a lot of really touching stuff with sideways and his mom. Mm hmm. Um, who's not necessarily a well-developed character either. <laughs> like, it was, you know, they did a lot with a character that doesn't have a ton there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Man, this is I, good. Uh, this is good. This is really good. I, um... I would really like if this could just, like, spin off, and or I would love for Sideways to be a permanent member of the Seven Soldiers. You know, maybe, maybe like... Maybe they get Manhattan Guardian back, and then Zatanna's kind of too, you know, A-list at this point, heading up the Justice League Dark to be hanging yeah. out with these guys all the time. Maybe, uh, I, I don't know. I, I really doubt that'll happen. I think this is like a one-arc thing, but I really like this. I like this a lot. And And again, it's kind of... This is just one of those weird facets spinning out of metal. You know, metal was very much... A continuation is a lot of of a lot of things, but it was in a in some ways a Final Crisis sequel, and so now we're getting uh, Seven Soldiers and and Sideways. We're getting uh, Mandrak and the Unexpected. So it's such a weird time right now. I feel it like it really is. It really is not in a bad way. No, it's a great like these are all things that I love. Um, so it's so cool. It makes me. Um, there are more DC books that I want to be buying and collecting regularly, I think, than since pre-New 52. Like, this is the most. That's high praise. Yeah. All right, let's, let's real quickly go through Suicide Squad. This is the first part of the Sync Atlanta story. It's scripted by uh, Rob Williams, but plotted by Williams and Dan Abnett, and illustrated by Jose Luis. I don't think there's anything surprising in this issue, except that this is the best issue of Suicide Squad in Rebirth. Yeah, 100%. Um, also, maybe, like, the best um, uh, illustrated as well, like, the nicest-looking issue of Suicide Squad. Well, it helps when um, Killer Croc is vomiting in this issue. <laughs> You're right. Um... Yeah, I, I liked this issue. So First I. time I've said that about Suicide Squad. Yeah. I, again, it, it's it's nothing earth-shattering, but there, there's some nice bits here with Arthur and Mara where uh, where he doesn't want to like take the spotlight away from her, and so he doesn't go to her coronation. And uh, yeah, I, I don't even hate Deadshot in this, but I feel like I've hated Deadshot a lot lately. <laughs> I don't even hate Deadshot here. Um, this is fine. Yeah, it, it feels more... Uh, like an Aquaman issue with the Suicide Squad in it, then yes. vice versa. Agreed. Agreed 100%. All right, let's get to Superman number two, written by Brian Bendis, illustrated by Avin Reyes, 
Um, I have kind of a bone to pick with this issue, but I think you're going to understand what I mean by this issue. Go for um, it. This is the wordiest Bendis has been at DC. Yeah, definitely. Just like flipping through it, there are so many words, and especially the flash in this issue was maybe the closest to being a bit much. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. It's still not bad. No, there, I love this. <laughs> I liked a lot of this. I just wished that, that Bendis used half as many words for his Superman uh, narration stuff. I actually didn't mind the Superman narration stuff that much. I There, there are a few pages where it does seem a bit much, but I don't, so usually when there's a lot of words on the page, I can really notice it because it, it feels like it crowds in the art. But I'm flipping through this right now and none of the pages feel crowded. And maybe it's just because a lot of the pages with a lot of narration are um, two-page spreads or splash pages. Yes. And the words are kind of going around the key things. Like probably the one that looks the worst, I think, maybe is – um the the page where clark is in the middle flying like towards the reader and there's just kind of word balloons placed around him it towards the beginning of the issue yeah there's a lot of like okay we have all these these narration boxes that we have to put in somewhere where they don't block uh important things and and that's the one that i think looks the worst but once you get past that, it it's really not that bad. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I'll say that uh, I think it's interesting that in the shot of the Justice League, Plastic Man and Hawkman are there. Yeah. That's fun. Which though. I can see Hawkman. Um, because I think, isn't Hawkman the only other book right now that has a Justice League... Um, uh, icon on the front i don't know it might be i think i i kind of think it is other than like you know justice league books but right um let me no it actually has a hawk logo never mind i thought it had a new justice logo on it but um never mind then ignore that um but yeah we are burying the lead here what's the lead the motherfucking nuclear man (laughs) you're right you're right Oh, that, (laughs) I love that so much. Yeah. I hope it's not the last we see of him. I hope not too. And, and, you know, that reminds me, um, I think this is like a really small connection, but just the way that like Reyes draws him here. I'm getting like vibes of um, Hyperion and Jonathan Hickman's yes. Avengers run. Yes, yes, yes. And it looks Excellent so good. Point. I love it. Agreed, one hundred percent. Anything else to add to this? Um, no, this is still great. Although Barry doesn't have red hair, right? I don't think so. He that looks like Wally, <laughs> but it's supposed to be Barry. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think unfortunately Wally and Barry have been used too much in uh, 
sort of in place of each other as of late anyway. Uh-huh. So. Small anyway, thing. Is, yeah. Uh, we're going to take an unprecedented second break here. And we'll be back in just a minute. My name's Matt. And I'm Wes. And together we host That's the Issue, the comic book podcast that gets to know you through the issues that you love. Every month we take a random, tangent-filled look through comic books and pop culture. And along the way we cover everything from Doink the Clown to Mr. Blobby. Don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. We don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. (laughs) We do also talk about comic books as well. Like the weirdest comic books in your collection or your favorite comic book movies. So join us on the third Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com or wherever podcasts are found. Blobby, blobby, blobby! (laughs) I knew you'd do that well. That's why I put it at the end. And we are back with The Flash number 52. Written by Joshua Williamson, illustrated by Christian Duce. And this is a big issue. Very big. We get uh, some multiverse stuff again. Like, more multiversal stuff this week than in forever, really. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, there's a lot, yeah. So many speedsters. All the speedsters. Um, yeah. let's see if we can highlight there, highlight just a few good ones, yeah. um, that stood out. We've got like the, the turtle, the animal one from the, um, um, I guess whatever the animal universe is with Captain Carrot. Um, yeah. there's the kingdom come flash. Uh, there's a bizarro flash. I think, um, is that, I think that's the flash from Batman beyond the one on on that first big splash page, the second one at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the Tangent Universe Flash, um, the little Chibi World Flash, the f- Flash from the world where they're all Metal Men robots. Um, and then, like, some other... I, I saw the New 52 Earth 2 Flash in there somewhere. Oh, I uh, missed that one. It's... um. He is oh, on is. the yeah, last page where we see him. Yeah, he's in there. And then there's like the Western Flash, and I I don't know where the the pilot one is from. Yeah, um, I was looking for. Uh, I, I I didn't see him. The um the I I keep waiting for them to use the what if Stan Lee created DC characters versions. Hmm. Remember those miniseries they did? Yeah, I do. I I, I feel like the, I feel like that guy's gonna show up eventually here. Yeah, you would think so. I also really have a soft spot for that uh, for Hot Pursuit, the Flash who rode a motorcycle in <laughs> John's. <laughs> yeah. Pre Flashpoint run, I just I always totally loved the design of that. that character. Um, but yeah, this was really cool. You know, this issue opens up with the first panels, the, the multiversity map again, that thing has shown up in comics more times than I could have ever expected. Agreed completely. Um, but yeah, we start off with that stuff and it's really great. And then we move into this like really nice story with the trickster and with like Barry and, and commander cold, um, doing this like weird buddy cop thing that I really, really love. Yeah. Um, this issue was great. And then the, and the Iris stuff where she's, she's remembering things. This, this feels like, um, to me, just like height of pre flashpoint flash stuff. Yeah. 
uh, this this to me feels like the best indication that we have. The Flash every month feels like the best indication that we're not done with pre-Flashpoint yet. Mm-hmm. And I I was initially worried about that because as much as I want some of those concepts back, I'm also not looking forward to the sort of convoluted continuity machinations that might have to happen to get us there. But Williamson makes it all seem so natural and easy here that I am far more interested in this than I thought I would be. Think about like how many threads he's juggling here. He's juggling multiversity, he's juggling rebirth, and he's juggling post-metal New Justice stuff. And he's plus, like telling a really great story. Plus his yeah. own stuff. Plus his own stuff. Plus he's also sort of toggling back and forth between characters remembering pre-Flashpoint. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, pre-Flashpoint too. Um, and it, it's so good. And it's crazy to think that like, you know, what if this, this, um, you know, these shakeups to the Flash mythology coming out of metal are the things that end up propelling this book to 100 issues? Yeah. Um, this is really good. I think sometimes I've maybe um, slept on the Flash a little bit because there have been some arcs that maybe seem like they didn't matter as much, but... I think more than any book, this seems like the heart of Rebirth. Yeah, I completely concur. I think this this feels like you know after every run, rather after every like event DC does, there's always that book that stands out as like, oh, this is what this is what was emblematic of this event afterthought, and I think that to a certain degree, Batman is what. Everyone remember from the New 52 that that mm-hmm. is like the book that represents the best of the New 52. I think this represents the best of Rebirth right now. Yeah, I agree. All right. We didn't read the Immortal Men number five, so we're not even going to talk about it. Sorry, Vince. Um, and that, so that brings us to Titans number 24, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Brent Peebles. Um, so this is a fun story. So essentially, there's an uh, an English teacher slash failed um, failed uh, sci-fi writer who or fantasy writer rather who basically creates like a a a role-playing game based around his books that weren't successful. And then, due to the breach in the source wall, some dark energy gets in his brain, and these things come to life. And that sounds really hokey and cheesy, but I thought it was super fun. It is really fun and it works really well. It's like such a strong concept that you could almost it's like, oh, is this what this Titans run is going to be about? Where you just have this like alternate reality that is, you have this kind of Loki figure. Um, I can't remember his name. Yeah. Um, there's a, a lot of time spent on this concept and then the you know the reveal at the end which does seem to indicate that you know this is going to stick around maybe not in the way that i initially expected but um this is such a weird quirky take considering how the the previous 22 issues or whatever that abnet did 
um, before this, you know, new team was like pretty, pretty standard superhero fare. Mm-hmm. And this is just like so off in left field. I like it. Yeah. yeah. And, and with Raven left in this alternate reality, I wonder how long there's going to be this faux Raven flowing around. Because you see Raven. Oh, man, that's faux Raven. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Oh, goodness gracious, Zach. I can't top that. We have to stop talking about this issue because I can't top that. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, man, Abnet really has a thing for, like, double crossing and then like doppelgangers and and like who do you trust and he really likes that stuff yeah yeah as long as it's working i don't care mm-hmm. yeah and cool. uh art shake up and this issue who's who's the new artist uh brent peebles peebles yes okay i like this better than peterson i'll say i don't but i thought this was still good okay um i'm glad that titans is becoming its own thing and I think I, I, th- I think one of the problems with the the rebirth stuff, and they kind of address this uh, in the in the book as well, is that like the Titans are a team of friends, and that's their hook, but that's not enough of a hook. This gives them something to do that is different. Yeah, yeah, they have like a mission statement that they're working out of. You know, the new status quo. It, yeah, it works really well, and the team. Yeah. I'll say, like, I think this team is a lot more interesting than the old one. Yeah, I I reluctantly agree. I know that that's a lot of your mainstays and on that old team, but um, but I think it's I think this is way more interesting than that. I, ye- I yeah. I, I hope that you know. I know we're getting Wally over in Heroes in Crisis, and I know that we're. I think um, I want to say Aqualad is popping up, or Tempest rather is popping up back in this book in a few months because this ties into the whatever the aquaman arc of justice league is oh okay and so i know there's there's some tie-in issues that'll bring tempest back into this and like i don't really care about lilith or uh or that and you know we we know where roy is going to be so yeah i'm fine with this yeah so so you're saying that this is going to tie into that crossover or is that no this will yeah oh okay Interesting. I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah. All right. And that brings us to our final issue of the week. Wonder Woman number 52, written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by ACO. And um, so this sees Diana meet up with Artemis and the new Aztec that we saw over in um, Steve Orlando's Justice League of America slash Justice um, Foundation. And... uh, not again, like sort of a theme for this week. There's a lot of issues that don't that don't try and do too much, but really captured my imagination in what they did. First of all, ACO's art in this issue is gorgeous. Oh my goodness! Maybe I think this might be the best looking issue of the week. It's in a close, week of not. really great looking issues. Um, yeah. The design work in this is spectacular. Yes, but you don't have you know what I mean about it not trying to do too much. Like yeah, this, yeah. This just it starts off an arc, but it does so in a relatively laid back, not super 
got to rush to get it all in one issue way. And so it lets everything breathe a little bit better. And like you said, the design work is just so beautiful. The layouts in this book. Maron, to quote Vince. So good. This issue really does a thing that I love um, where a creator has been... A, you know, a, a DC creator has done enough projects that they kind of have their stable of characters and they can do this thing that is very much... This is this is an Orlando DC Universe book. You know, he's bringing in Aztec. There's a panel with um, the Ascendant from The Unexpected. Um, he is he's carrying in and out these threads from like other things that he has done, and it it works so well. I think. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Um. Orlando's a guy who, I I don't I think after his Apollo and Midnighter stuff, everybody expected him to be on like a hot DC book, and maybe Justice League of America was the closest he got to that. But he's sort of stuck to these lesser characters. I don't mean that as an as an insult. I just mean it to, as he hasn't been on an A list title yet, right? But like mm-hmm. you said, he's built up this stable of characters, and it just seems like he has a. He has a corner of the DC universe that he keeps carving out deeper and deeper. And I love mm-hmm. that. And I hope yeah, he keeps yeah. doing it. Me too. Me too. You know, he, he's got the Electric Warriors book coming up. He is introducing a lot of cool stuff in The Unexpected. He supposedly maybe still has this other secret book that's like his dream project. Um, which who knows if that's Justice Foundation or if it's something else that we don't even know about. Somebody um, rumored that it's uh, Doom Patrol, that he'll be taking that back and bringing them back into the DC Universe. Interesting. Which would work really well, considering, um, you know, how involved he was with Milk Wars. Right, yeah. And how Justice League of America continued plot threads from Milk Wars. Yeah. Um, and even this, you know, kind of the... Um, I don't think this is like mentioned explicitly, but I think Milk Wars was the first time. Well, actually, was Aztec in Milk Wars at that point? I can't remember. I can't remember either. I don't. I don't know. I was thinking like, oh, that would have maybe been the first time that her and Wonder Woman would have interacted, because um, Wonder Woman was in that story. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Yeah, again, this is all just still like kind of playing to. Um, Orlando's corner of the DCU, he, um, again, like, you know, Lobdell has actually been doing a lot better with Artemis lately. I think, you know, Artemis has not been a character I've been terribly invested in, but she was great here. Um, I, I really liked her use here. Um, I feel like I, I know I compare things to Morrison too much, but this <laughs> or, Orlando is maybe. There are a lot of writers at DC right now who want to ape and mirror Morrison. Would you agree? Like they do it oh, a lot, yeah. all the time. Oh, of course, yeah. And Orlando is like an, an admitted huge fan of Morrison. Yes. And he maybe is the most successful of carrying that torch 
Well, I think he... Hmm, that's an excellent question, Zach. I think he's successful because he's not as... He's not trying to take Morrison ideas and doing the biggest possible story with them. Like, I think that what, what hurts is when writers try and pick up on... Like, for instance, if... If... Like, Metal was definitely, like you said, it touches on a little bit of Final Crisis stuff, but it's not trying to do Final Crisis 2. It's taking Morrison ideas and incorporating it into something of their own that works. Yes. And I think Orlando does that really well, but it's on an even smaller scale than Metal. Like, he's not trying to make the next big event be a Morrisonian thing. He's just doing these little issues here and there that feel connected to that. And that feels more organic. Yeah, it's almost like you have, like, three different types of things. You have the, um, you know, maybe kind of like what Sideways did this week in being just, like, a very a very blatant um, use of a Morrisonian concept. You have Metal, which was kind of a continuation, but, like, very much a spiritual sequel to Morrison Works with, like, both Final Crisis and his Batman stuff. But then you have Orlando, which, um, you know, Aztec is a, is a Morrisonian thing. Um, but also just, you know, Justice League of America was kind of a really tangential... I, I, I feel like Orlando has, like, you know, he's mentioned how much of a fan he was of Morrison's JLA, and it... You you get that, but you it never really felt obvious ever. It was very subtle. That's a good word, but but then like visually, the the things that this issue is doing feels like a. It's just so weirdly high concept in the way it's illustrated, and you're dealing with like higher levels of reality and things like that. Um, not that like Morrison has a. <laughs> mm. Has a moratorium on all a monopoly on those concepts, but. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I just I love this a lot. I thought this was this was one of my favorite issues of the week for sure. Probably in my top three. We talked about this before the call, before the show started, rather. But this is one of the strongest weeks DC's had in forever. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's really special, and I hope that they can keep this hot streak up next week. Where let, let's just run through some of the stuff you get next week. So okay. we have the finale of Cave Carson. Mm-hmm. We have the next issue of the uh, Lee Weeks Batman. Right, which I think is the end of this arc. I'm pretty sure. I believe it is. Yes. Uh, we get Justice League. Mm-hmm. We get the first issue of Pearl, the new, uh, the new Brian Bendis Jinx World joint. We also get. And this is uh, this is the Gatos one, right? Not the Mac one. I think the David Mack one is cover, right? I believe so. I'm I'm actually uh, looking that up right now. Let's see. I got it right here. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, this is the Gatos one. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, another big week, but not nearly as big as this week. It's funny, uh, looking at this week, it's just like, oh, I can't believe there's so many books here. You know, this is slightly more manageable. 
Yeah, yeah. What we counted, there were 17 books this week, but we didn't yes. read. Uh, Immortal Men. Uh, Immortal Men. Yeah, yeah. So one, definitely one of the bigger weeks. And you know, as we're getting more of these imprints popping up, it's gonna get, it's gonna get bigger. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's gonna make our show a little harder. I think in a couple of ways. But yeah, we might. That's okay. Um, we'll make it work. Yeah, I also think that you know, with with uh, Young Animal winding down, mm-hmm. that's like four, four or five books a month. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, yeah, and who knows if I mean I don't know. I guess we haven't made our intentions clear about whether or not we're gonna follow all the Jinx World books or those types of things. I guess it yeah, depends I, on how much we like them. Yeah, and there's a conversation to have with Vince too to make sure that he is over with that. I I don't really have a ton of interest in the Jinx World books. I mean, I have a sort of curiosity about it, but I don't really, I don't know. I've never really been a, I've never really read those books before. So who knows? I might love them. Who knows? I am a huge David Mack Mark, so. Yeah. Bendis has a real eye for artistic talent, it seems. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad he's bringing that eye to DC. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We we truly appreciate it. And uh we are uh, we're hoping that there might be some uh, some New York Comic Con DC stuff in the DC three stuff in the future. We're 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 fingers crossed on that. So we will keep you guys updated as soon as we know. And until then, you can tweet at all of us. You can tweet at Vince's Ghost at LCD underscore Lounge System. You can tweet at my corporeal form at Brian It's a Nap. And I am at Wilker Fox. And we'll be back next week with more DC3 cast and uh, RIP events. See you later. Do you remember when uh, John became a star sapphire for like a hot minute? I do. That was weird. Yeah, it was weird. (laughs)